welcome to A Life Shared, Parent Helps and Renovations. Whether your kids are three months old or 33 years old, we can live with each other in a way that gives life. That's A Life Shared. I'm Ellen Martin. Glad you joined us. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It's a reminder that cancer impacts one out of three people. Those numbers seem surreal, but the reality hit home several years ago when our family was impacted by cancer. Today's guest has and continues to receive treatments for breast cancer, but before breast cancer, she lived with her husband through colon cancer. Today's episode offers us a treasure in understanding how cancer can and often does impact lives. If you are experiencing any grief at this point in your life, I encourage you to possibly, well, save this episode for another time if today's a tender day. For the rest of you, may you hold the treasure that our guest has given us and allow it to do its work to give life to you and those around you. Crystal, welcome to A Life Shared Parent Helps and Renovations. Ellen, thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you with us. You have lived a life after cancer and a life with cancer. Or before we go any further, can you give us a timeline to help us anchor ourselves in your story? Because your story runs in many directions. Yes, it does. 2009, my husband was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. He passed away in May of 2010. And so that that span of 2009, nine to 2010 were spent traveling to MD Anderson, flying back here, facilitating treatments here at Central Baptist and all of that entails. Um, And so that was 2009 and most of 2010. And then May of 2010, he passed away. Um, Six weeks later, um, my father-in-law, his dad, he was an only child, um, he committed suicide. And then the next day, because, you know, comes in threes, um, the next day, my youngest daughter was critical at the pediatric um, hematology and oncology clinic at UK. She had battled a bleeding disorder that was very rare um, since she was four and a half. And um, we had not been good at keeping up with her appointments um, because of not being here and trying to take care of my husband's cancer. And so that was on my to-do list. I did it and um, she was critical that day. Her platelet count was too low. And so they started treatments on her. And then in October of that year, she had her spleen removed. And that next year was her in and out of the hospital because she didn't have the immunity. Um, So she was septic and um, little infections would send her into needing IV treatment, IV uh, antibiotics. And so that was 2009, 2010 um, in to, and part of 11, and in 2011 in May, God called me to social work um, to go back to school, and I did. And so um, I finished that um, in 2016, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And I opened my private practice year before last, which with COVID, I can't remember dates anymore. They all run together. So that'd be 2020. That next year, um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I think that pretty much wraps up kind of a timeline to understand um, I did, went through five months of um, treatment for stage one breast cancer um, with some, I had some complications with it. What I thought in my head would be two weeks out of the office, which I scheduled and had it all pretty and tied in a bow and was ready to come back in two weeks after a, a bilateral mastectomy turned into six months. That's pretty much the long and short of it. 
What was it like being a parent with two children and supporting your husband through stage four lung cancer? Whew, that's a loaded question. We're a really strong family. And God had put things in line uh, for us. And to simplify that, I was uh, on staff with our children's ministry at our church. And in um, April, God was calling me out of it and I didn't understand, thought it was the enemy. Fought it really hard all summer. And then in September, a friend was walking with me and she prayed with me. And as soon as we were done, it was in between, it was in the second service. Um, we were outside walking and talking and she was ministering to me. Holy Spirit spoke through her. And I walked in and told our children's ministry that I needed to withdraw from the children's ministry, which I was very intricately involved in. So it took a little bit to get out. So it was November before I was out of that um, of 2008. And then my mother-in-law asked to move in with us, which totally freaked me out, but it's all good. <laughs> and um, she asked to move in. So um, she was in the process of moving in. And then we got his diagnosis on January the 8th when the oncologist was trying to tell me what he had found in the colonoscopy. I asked him to stop because God was doing like flip cards of the ways that he had set us up that the ministry wouldn't be bothered and we would be able to face the battle that was ahead of us. And in that moment, I have cold chill bumps right now. Um, in that moment, I knew that God was with us, but he was before us as well. And he was paving the way for us. And the thing with cancer is, is you don't know what the outcome is and you ask for healing, but healing comes in lots of ways. So we didn't get the healing that we necessarily wanted in our flesh, but he has ultimate healing. How old were your kids at the time, Crystal? They were 13 and 16. One was in eighth grade and one was um, a junior at that time. Uh, I remember coming home from the colonoscopy and we, of course, stopped at his work because he was a vice president. So they, they had to make plans. He did, we didn't want to negatively impact the things we were involved in. And we needed to figure out a smooth way to transition our family to the battle. Uh, my best friend picked up my girls from school. And we were in the living room and they came in and she didn't come in. She left. She gave us space. She knew what was going on. And um, can remember talking um, and telling them. And Emily has had her own health battles and she crawled up on her dad's lap. And Emily's smaller for her size. I have like a five, seven daughter and a five foot daughter. <laughs> and Emily's the five, uh, five foot and she's tiny anyways. And she's been through so much and she crawled on her daddy's lap and she said, daddy, why you? And my husband said, honey, if we're going to ask ourselves why me, we have to also ask ourselves why not me. We promised our girls that day that even if it really hurt, we would be honest and transparent with them and they would know what was going on and we wouldn't hide it. Um, a lot of times family think, families think they make their kids feel better if they hide it. And what we believe is, is that we can deal with the truth it's when lies happen and trust is broken that harm is caused. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And I've written about that in my book, the importance of answering our children's questions in ways that honor them and nurture the trust in the relationship. And so I'd love for you as a parent and also with the training you bring as a therapist to speak to the importance of walking as a family through tragedies like this instead of 
parents who are really well-intended and wanting to protect their children from the burden or the hardship or the fear if they are a family that worships Jesus, that their faith can't handle it. Can you speak to that and how the choice to be honest and transparent gave life to your family? Well, I think that the big thing that we have to realize, and if each individual sits and thinks about it, one of the things that we can't handle is lies. And so trust is a huge piece of us. It's an innate um, piece in us as human uh, as human beings. And when trust is broken, we don't know what's true and not because Mm -hmm. it's already occurred. And so where does that line go? And how do I know that you're really telling me the truth when this time you did this? You know, I wasn't a therapist at the time. (laughs) And so I was, you know, rolling with it as best as we can. And my big thing was, is how do I do the least amount of harm? How do we walk through this in a way that they're stronger in the end? Their faith is stronger, even if they get mad at God or they struggle with it. The faith of trust is still there. The faith and trust is still there. An example for me in how I knew we were doing the right thing was our life for that year, about a year of that year and a half that we battled, um, was spent going back and forth to MD Anderson. We would fly down. And in September of 2009, we bought a fifth wheel camper and a truck. Um, and we pulled it down to MD Anderson to have his, um, to begin having his um, liver resected. It would be three surgeries in all, and it was going to take about three months. And so we left our girls, we rolled out of the driveway, hardest thing I've ever done, um, and left them not really knowing 100% what our timeline was. And we left them with Nana, and we, it took us three days to get down there. We get to MD Anderson, he does his pre-op stuff. We had two days of that. We were all over the MD Anderson you know, campus, tired. A friend of mine, um, the day that we met with the, um, did the pre-op with the surgeon, she was flying in at the same time we were having this appointment with him. And she was flying in to be the go-between person for me at the hospital and to help take care of me and anything we needed. And so she was on a flight. She was coming and we are waiting in a, uh, a room for the surgeon to come in and do this pre-op so we can get going for the next day. And it took um, a little over an hour before anybody came into the room and we thought it was weird. And then we had a feeling, but neither of us talked about it. Mm -hmm. And when they came in, they told us in the six weeks that he had been off chemo to get ready for the surgery, it had metastasized not only from colon to liver, but into his lungs. And that's what we knew about. You know, we didn't know for sure if it was anywhere else, but it was in his lungs. And they said, we can't do the surgery. Our whole life, just all of a sudden, right now I can see it. It felt like we were in the middle of a hurricane and you couldn't grab anything. And then what do you do? And so I'm a problem solver. (laughs) And so we finished the appointment. We went outside and found a nice little place with a bench because I had my best friend coming on a taxi to the hospital (laughs) to meet us there. And we needed to figure out how to get home and what we needed to do. And we knew it was going to take three more days to get back. And um, we had to tell our girls. And how do you tell two little girls who th- who's willing to battle and give up mom and dad for possibly three months so that they can have their dad and a chance for him to live? And so we decided that we were going to call them. And all we were going to tell them was we were coming home. I asked them, we asked them, I know you have a lot of questions, but please trust us. And we're on our way home. We'll be there tomorrow. 
We can't get there now, but we'll be there tomorrow. Will you just trust us? And we'll answer all the questions when we get there tomorrow. And because of the trust that we had built over the last year and that we had been faithful, they weren't blindsided. And if someone said something that didn't line up with what mom and dad had said, then when they came to mom and dad, we were able to say, oh, no, that was a misunderstanding. What you Mm -hmm. know is true. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so because of that and that trust that had been built, they, even though it was really hard and in their gut, they knew it wasn't good. They were able to do that. And we flew out the next morning and came home. We swooped up our kids and our friends had a place in the woods um, way away from everything. And we whisked down there and and we were able to take some time with no um, definite end of when we needed to do that, to sit with them, to talk, to cry, to four wheel, to fish, um, talk through life, what it meant for them. What does death look like? Um, what does a timeline look like that we didn't even know the answer to? And so because of the built trust, they were able to trust us in one of the hardest situations. And they were a part of his whole entire treatment all the way to the moment he gave his last breath. They helped to care for him in everything. They were a part of the family. I'm kind of just sitting in the significance of what you just shared. And as someone who did this as an adult child with my father and took my Mm -hmm. children with me, for a visit, um, needed to take two of my children and driving back and forth from the hospital, bringing him home by ambulance for hospice care. I'm kind of just sitting in the reality of what that was like. We had a really good support system. In fact, our church, our pastor called and said, get tickets for the first flight out in the morning. We're paying for them. Don't worry about the cost. We need to get you all home to your girls. Mm. And that was the support we had. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And that helps. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, one of the most important things that gives life to families is resources and relationships. And so the fact yeah. that people came around you who you were in relationship with and they shared their resources to help you have a lighter burden um, to be together again, those things are game changers when we're living normal life and especially when we're living through difficulties like this. So how long was it for you all from when you found out that your husband's surgery had become inoperable because of the fact that the colon cancer had decided to multiply and make a home in his liver and his lungs? How much longer did you have with your husband before you said goodbye? That was September. We came back home and took a lower dose of chemo. They were trying to hold it at bay. In November, um, his numbers were not trending well. They were like quadrupling and tripling um, in between. And so he went in and told the oncologist that he was done and to give somebody else um, the medicine that it would actually help. And he was going to go live life. He was going hunting. That was November. And then um, he hunted his last turkey hunt in April and he passed away May the 12th of 2010. So we had, what is that? Five, nine, about nine months, eight or nine months after knowing there was a timeline on his life. How were those nine months for you as a family and as a wife and a mother? Oh, wow. It's a roller coaster because you, Mm -hmm. you know, that time is limited. And of course you want to pack everything in it, but yet you don't, you want to be alone with your family. Mm -hmm. Um, you want to involve everyone, but you don't, you're tired. 
And I think the best way to say how it was is it was full of community. Um, He turned 40 on January the 8th of 2010. And instead of just letting that go, we celebrated life. And we surprised him. And I had friends through our church that had just come. They We called them our Frankfurt crew. And um, they helped put together. I wanted a scrapbook, but I, did, I loved a scrapbook and I didn't have time. But I wanted something that showed his legacy for our children that they would always have in, in our grandchildren, that he wasn't going to get to, to meet the side of heaven. And they together made pages, scrapbook pages that were complete. And all you had to do was put your picture down and write on it. And mm-hmm. so we had a huge 40th birthday party. He was surprised about, he had no idea, um, at our church and people were told to bring pictures and they were to tell stories about their time with him and his impact on them. And he led mission trips to Haiti and stuff. And that night was an amazing night. Um, some of the guys got together and gave him a green egg cause he was a big cooker and he was always smoking food for vacation Bible school and everything, everything. Our house was known for food. Um, and so huge community there. And then her, his last turkey hunt, his buddies took him. He couldn't even put his own shoes on. And they did that. And he shot a turkey out of a window <laughs> and they helped make that happen. Um, and they loved on him and he got to do that. It was community. And then the last 10 days of his life, he passed in our home and that's how he wanted it. And we agreed. And uh, the last 10 days of his life, it wasn't just myself and my kids. Our house was full, so full that our church bought food and filled up the freezers and the, and the kitchen. And there was food coming in all the time and toilet paper, which you don't think you need. <laughs> it's not something you think. I never had to think during those 10 days, except anything, but him and my girls. That's all. I had friends, one of my best friends said, you can't be alone at night with him. And so two people would stay every night. They had a shift Uh and two people were always with me. They didn't want me to be alone. And I can remember the hospice nurse. She was wonderful. Her name was Sherry and she was from Versailles. And she still to this day has a huge impact. She actually worked with my grandmother, my husband's grandmother. Um, And so I can remember her coming in one day and the vehicles in our, around our home were backed all the way up and around the curve. So like a little under a quarter of a mile, maybe in our subdivision, she said she saw him and didn't know what was going on and thought it was bad. And then she walked in and she was just crying. She said she had never seen this before. Um, She had never seen so many people come in and it was calm and peaceful and there was laughter in the house. And um, so we lived life. My daughter um, was runner up for um, a distinguished young woman. Um, which was a beautiful thing. And we streamed that for him. That was was one wishes that he would get to see that. And he did. Um, And the girls around her made that an amazing experience. They set up cameras at the stage so that he could see her do everything. And I mean, everything was community. It was the people that he had poured into and they were pouring into us. And that's a life shared. You lived your last months in extraordinary special ways and also in very normal ways from friends helping him do his last turkey hunt to getting to be able to view a special experience that his daughter had. And you said goodbye. You know, cancer impacts one out of three people. One of the people it impacted in addition to you and your girls was obviously his mother and his father. And 
Am I to understand that the reason his father killed himself was the grief of his son's loss? I think that was the final thing. Um, he was an alcoholic as well. Mm. Um, and so I think that adversely impacted his ability to make good decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. Um, but I think losing your only child, your son, and he was a really good man. He was very well known in our community. He was a good, his son was a good man and, uh, he just couldn't, he couldn't handle it. Yeah. So you bury your husband Mm -hmm. And you said two weeks later, you bury your father-in-law? Six weeks later. We actually, Six weeks later. My husband and I, yeah, my husband and I had a plan. I was going to take the kids away as quick as I could to the beach for two weeks to where we all oh, the girls grew up at in Hilton Head. Um, and so, uh, you know, I had to get things done around here. It took me about a month to get away. We went away for two weeks. And the day after we came back, I went to the grocery store because we didn't have food. <laughs> You know, it had been like five weeks, six weeks since I had, you know, and so we didn't have anything really. And so I was huge basket full and I got the phone call. And so it just seemed like our life was in this whirlwind. And then the next day it was Emily. So. And so I find myself again, just sitting in the quiet of the weightedness of those things. The day my husband and I met with um, the oncologist. And he was, he knew he was telling him he was done. He wasn't going to take chemo that day. He was going to go live life. Um, I was standing at the window to check out. And then you, when you checked out and knew you were not, you know, you were doing at that form, it becomes palliative in end of life mm -hmm. care um, and hospice is involved. <clears throat> and so they turn you over to that care. That's a horrible thing to have to do. And your husband's standing there and they're asking you all these questions. But I hear my husband and Dr. Hicks in the hallway and I can see them. And they're facing each other. And Dr. Hicks was trying to say, was telling him, I, I can't imagine how hard this is for you, you know, with your girls and everything. And uh, my husband looked at him and said, um, dying is the easy part. It's the living that's hard. And forever, that will be ingrained in me. And I had no idea. I thought when he said it, I thought, oh, he is so mistaken. He has no idea what's ahead. You know, I don't either, um, but I hear it's not good. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. he has no idea. But in the dark hours in my bedroom when I was on my knees and my face was in the floor and I was asking God why and everything seemed so big and I felt all alone making all the choices. And I have a sick daughter and the house has to be taken care of and the pool's not working and the weed eater tried to kill me. <laughs> and all of these things are going on. Why me? Why why such a good man? Why, 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 why? Um, this is so hard, God. It's just so hard. And we had so much to do. Our 20th anniversary was March of 2010. Mm -hmm. And so we had so much more to do. And mm -hmm. that would always come back in my mind. Dying is the easy part. Living is what's hard. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think there's some truth there. Not that I think dying is easy. But living after a huge loss like that is really hard. My girls struggle every day. I'm having a grandbaby in April, grandson, after two granddaughters who I love and adore. And so there'll always be those times in my life, our life as a family, that we want to turn to them and say, look, look mm -hmm. at our grandbaby. Look at our mm -hmm. grandson. 
and they're gone. They're not there. So grief is very much, I think sometimes we put grief into a, into a box or a, a simple little paradigm, a little circle or a little square. It doesn't fit there. It just no. doesn't fit there. But in our world, we like to manage chaos, right? Yeah. And so the chaos that we're, you know, we want to control things. And so we try to put it in a box. And um, What I've found is grief. It's so completely unique for every single person yes. and it's personal and it's based on your life experiences and the shared experiences with the person and the hopes and the dreams that you had and you had together and individually and, and it ebbs and flows and it'll rear up and smack you across the face when you least expect it. Um, and you got to feel it, you got to experience it and you got to give it a place in your life. You got to honor that moment because it's part of your journey. Um, yeah. But that living part is so hard. Yeah. It's so hard. <laughs> yeah. I, I just closed up. I was editing an episode that, that's going out. And, and part of the wrap up was life is hard. We don't have to make it harder. Yeah. 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 So in the beginning, part of the timeline you gave us is that not only did you live through this with your husband, did you walk through the unexpected sudden loss of your father-in-law soon after your father, your husband's passing, and then your your daughter was was critically ill as well. So you've you've supported your husband through cancer and saying goodbye. You've been with your daughter through stabilizing her health when she became very critical and at a time where you were really grieving the loss of your husband and all of a sudden you got to go into task mode again and make sure your daughter's well. And if all that isn't enough, then you go off and get breast cancer not too long ago, Crystal. <laughs> we haven't I even talked about either. that yet. <laughs> oh, Lord help us. I'm an overachiever. What can I say, Ellen? <laughs> Oh, I had a, a someone say to me not long ago, if you're going to do a bad thing, you just might as well do it really well. <laughs> so, so, so you guys are, are killing the living with life tragedies and walking through life with cancer. Pun not intended. Some people may think that's insensitive. I appreciate that as someone who's walked through cancer with lived life after cancer and has walked through cancer and is now on the other side that really we just have to joke about these kind of tragedies. Yes, we do. <laughs> because we're going to either laugh or healing. cry. Yes, it is healing. Amen. And the crying is healing as well, but we have to laugh yeah. too. So you had breast cancer. Was this genetic in your family? Was this just, well, of course we have cancer. We get sick in our family. That's what we do. Can you give us a little <laughs> bit about your story there? It's <laughs> funny. Um, technically, no, I do not have a history. I, I, okay, hold on. So my mother had breast cancer um, at early 2000 sometime um, at the early 2000s. And um, she, my understanding from my aunt, I don't have a relationship with my parents. Um, that's a whole nother story. Um, but she, my understanding was, was a carrier of one of the ca breast cancer genes. And so we went into this knowing that she did and she was her too positive. And so that meant that she had a year of treatments. She had to be treated before. And so anyhow, it's a lot more. And so when I went to do, when I was diagnosed, I knew, 
um, because of COVID, I hadn't been able to get my mammogram and my MRI. I already had a mass that was being followed that was benign, but they were following it because of my history every six months. So I went, so it was last year, so that's a year um, without, well, technically two years because I would have January 2020, I should have had my mammogram and, and my MRI done. And I couldn't. And so I was walking in that February, I was walking to get um, something out of the laundry room and I felt the spirit tell me to touch my breast in an area I've never had an issue with. Same breast that I've had other places. And so I did and immediately I felt it and I knew it was different. The And I immediately went and made a call, got in. Um, they did my MRI and asked if I could see it and they let me and I said, that's not good, is it? And she said, no. So I could tell. And I'm a social worker. <laughs> therapist. Um, when you can so, read, you know, when day, you can see that the screening is not good, you know it's not good. Yeah, it wasn't horrible, though. It wasn't huge. They were shocked that I could even find it. They oh, were wow. completely surprised. And I could put my finger right on it, but the doctors couldn't find it themselves. And so even with the ultrasound in front of them, they were having a hard time and I could get right to it. I knew exactly where it was. So when mm -hmm. I left the office that day, they were wonderful. I mean, I left at dark. Um, and so when I left, um, I knew the doctor told me she was 99.9% .9 sure it was classic mm -hmm. um, that it was cancer. And so um, that was when our journey really started. Once again, I've kind of forgotten the question. So yeah. your journey started with a mammogram and they are telling you we're pretty sure it's cancer. We'll get the results and, and get back to you soon. Yes. Yep. Okay. And then I got the call mm -hmm. and it was, and it was, and it was stage one, two B, I think is what it's called. And so we thought no big deal, right? <laughs> and we were wrong. <laughs> we were very wrong. I had my, I had my bilateral mastectomy. I chose, I could have had, I could have had a lumpectomy. I was a candidate. And I had told myself because of my family history and my own history that I would not do that. I would, if I got breast cancer, I was having a mastectomy. They've done what they've done that I've needed them to do. I'm no longer trying to have children, you know, and they have served me and served me well. And in fact, I decided at that time they had betrayed me. And so we were at war. <laughs> no, You're talking win. about your breast hey. now. I, I, I was a little slow to I'm catch on to that, but I, I'm with you now. They have betrayed you. They are sick. So they got to go. They betrayed me. And so I told them, you know, I was, I wanted a bilateral mastectomy, which you have that choice as a woman. You get to, there is so much autonomy choice in breast cancer because there's so much research and they know so much. And so you get to make those choices. And that is, that is an option. Even, no matter what the grade or the level of cancer it is, you get that option. So I went to bilateral mastectomy. The God part of this is, is I went for my post-op appointment with the surgeon and he came in. And so they, they take the other breast and they send it to pathology and they do a couple of cuts. They don't do it as intensely as the one that has breast cancer in it. And so they do like four cuts is what he said. The pathologist does just to check and make sure it's a healthy breast. And it had cancer in it and it was a different form. And it was never caught on the, on the mammogram or the ultrasound. It was never caught on anything. So if I had had a lumpectomy, that breast cancer would have been growing unchecked for quite a while. Because I would have had to have radiation, the lumpectomy, and all of that. And that is God. That is my God. 
and I had some complications from my surgery and had to go in and have surgery again. And the expander was removed uh, for reconstruction. Um, and so I was in the hospital for five days with that. And then the end of July, I asked them to go back in and remove the other expander and just clean everything up. And I didn't want to do reconstruction. I was fine. And, uh, and that really is the big part of my journey as far as walking through the steps of it. Um, I continue to be on medication for five years, which is horrible. <laughs> you want it? What is horrible about that? Um, I mean, with any medication, you have side effects and they warned us. Um, and so I have really bad joint pain, which we have to treat with another medicine. <laughs> and then my memory. Um, and, you know, they've told me I had three major surgeries in three months. Um, and they keep reminding me that I'm 50 um, and I'm not as young as I used to be. And so just the recovery from that alone would cause those issues. Um, I had, had COVID the November before. Um, and then I have celiac disease. So that all, you know. I had been in the hospital for that the year before too. And um, so anyhow, all of those things have not made recovery, as far as my body is concerned, simple. Um, but the medication also has the side effects as well. So I think it's a compilation of, of multiple different things. So I forget things a lot. And I can tell you, it starts with an S yeah. and it <laughs> yeah. slithers on the ground. And <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, it, my dad would talk about chemo brain. Yes, and, it's true. And I was like, okay, but you know, if you, you can't even begin to imagine what someone's experiencing <laughs> when they're saying these things. And then when I got COVID, um, the first time I've had it twice and became a classic long hauler, someone who kept living with the impact of COVID for months and months and months, I began to understand chemo brain because yeah. I lived with debilitating brain fog. Um, you know, there was a day I couldn't make change for a dollar. I literally could not do yeah. the math and I used to work for a math yes. company. And so I'm listening to you and I'm like, <laughs> I get it. I get it. The other day, my husband was asking me something. And I was like, I'm not really sure. Uh, start guessing. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's going to come to well, me. Just really stay funny. with me. So, you know, this is living with cancer for you, the other side of it, the treatment that you have now have for yeah. five years. So your girls are not 13 and 16 anymore. They're adults, no. but you're still a parent. Yes. You're now also a grandparent. Yeah. How has having yes. cancer with older children been different than walking through cancer with your husband with children that were still in your home? Oh, man, is that a loaded question with so many different facets? It's a lot easier I, that's not even saying that it's a lot easier to be on the other side. It's not really completely true. So that would be a lie if I told you that. The December before, so 2020, I like to ask God, what is a word that you want to use this year to motivate me? You know, um, and I know it can look different and whatever. And on December the 16th, he gave me the word transformation. I remember that. Didn't write it in my journal or anything. I'll never forget that day. Um, it was transformation and I knew it was transformation of my whole self, mind, body, heart, spirit. You know, I had some ideas in my head and then I found that lump and I was diagnosed with cancer. I had no idea what transformation meant, nor did I know that it would impact how it would impact my family. 
and it was body, heart, mind, and spirit. <laughs> and so it was whole. Um, and when I knew that I had the lump, I couldn't tell them right off. I didn't know what to do with it. And all I could think of was, here they go again. I'm the only biological parent they have. I have remarried and, and they very much love my husband. Um, he has joined them where they were and he supports them and loves them. And, but I was their biological. And so many members of the family have passed away that, you know, I can remember my oldest daughter saying, I told Emily that if, if we lose you, we're it. We only have each other. So we have to be nice to each other. <laughs> something like that. I'm sure she's going to hear this and go, that's not how I said it. But something like that. And um, those things stay in your mind. And so I wanted it to go as easy as possible for them, even though it was stage one, you know. And so for me, the big thing I think that changed between their father and me is there was a role reversal. So my oldest daughter was 28 and my youngest daughter was 25, technically 24 and turned 25. Um, my oldest daughter has two children and another one on the way. They're both married, live in different cities in Kentucky. Um, and then I have two um, grandchildren and they have families and live in different places. But for my children, all of a sudden I wasn't mom anymore. I was mom, but I wasn't the caretaker anymore. And I can remember my youngest daughter who lives locally to us. Um, she said, mom, if Dane, my husband, can't take you to an appointment, don't you call your friends or anybody. You call me first. I'm taking you to your appointments. There was a lot of fear for my kids because I, anybody that's been, I took care of my first husband's mom um, who got an early onset of dementia. And so every time she was in the hospital, she had a lot of health problems. And my husband as well. I never let them stay alone. I even helped a friend out when their mom was in um the hospital, I would stay nights. I would, I was on a rotation with some other people. And I, I just feel like having family there helps you to heal better and to focus on what you're needing. A nurse or a tech can't run back and forth all the time and grab you a tissue or fluff mm -hmm. your pillow. Or, mm -hmm. um, and so having that intimate care and love and community, I think helps you to heal and, and to feel loved and treasured. And so I'd always done that. My daughter um, and all her health problems, I was there for everything, of course. Um, but then we roll into me with breast cancer during COVID when they're saying you can't have anybody in the hospital with you. And it changed every, it, it was different. And so um, they became protective and taking care of me. Um, my daughter was wonderful. She treated me like I was Nana and she would drop me off at the front door and set me on a bench <laughs> and she would run to the parking garage and park. And then she'd run back so we could go upstairs for appointments and she'd do the same thing when we left. Um, she would stop at the grocery and, you know, she would get the things that I needed because you can't move your arms very good. Your mo mobility isn't the greatest. And, you know, my older daughter came in and she brought my oldest granddaughter and she would lotion up my legs. And, <laughs> you know, she took care of me and my daughter um, would cook and made sure I had food when they left. And so it was different. They were caring and tending to me. It's um, a humbling experience. A very humbling experience. And when I was in a hospital, I was at UK. They did allow one person. And because my children had lost their dad and this, they were re-experiencing cancer, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they allowed um, my daughter and my husband to switch off um, because of his job. He couldn't be there the whole time. And it was hard to find someone to cover him. And so she 
would come and stay. And so they were always with me and she wasn't in the best of health at times, not feeling well. And she was right there um, for everything that I needed. My daughter was always on the phone that lives farther away and she was there with me at home when, when I needed her. And it was a very humbling experience to be on the other side and, and others were caring for you. I'm really good at giving care, whether it be in therapy or um, to a family member when they're sick or whatever, it's, it's, it's a little harder to take it um, and to accept it. And so cancer was in both ways was totally different, humbling experiences. If you could sum up, and this is a big ask, and if it's too much of an ask, just say, well, I can't do that. But if you could sum up how living with and through cancer twice, once as a wife and once as a woman, how would you say it's changed you? Still being here, how has it given you life? I think for the first time in my life, I think this is going to be on my epitaph when I die, you know, it's going to be on my tombstone. Um, I am okay with sitting with myself. And I talk to the clients that I work with and I tell them that when we, when you know you've had good work will be the day that you are okay and or willing to just sit with yourself. We strive for contentment so much. And I think that's contentment. While the storm may rage around you and things are hurling and flying everywhere and it seems like you can't grasp control and you can't bring the chaos into a neat little package and put a bow on it and, and, and place it somewhere else, I think that we begin to realize that in spite of that, we can still be content and be okay with who we are, even in the brokenness, even mm -hmm. in the cracks and the bruises and the scars that it's the heart of who we are. And I think for my first time in my 50 years of living, I can sit with myself and I'm content in that. That sounds like quite the transformation, Crystal. It is. I think we spend as women, we spend our life trying to measure up to what the world says we need to, whether it's um, the church, because they do, you know, just, we have a Proverbs 35 woman, you know, and so we have scripture to live by. And so whether it's that or our parents or our job, our family, and we, you know, and then we always need to lose weight or get healthier, work out, whatever. It's always something that's in progress or should be in progress. And then we so a lot of times feel guilt because or failure because we didn't. But at the end of the day, it's who we are as a person. It's not the size of clothes we wear. It's not how good we cook or how good we keep a house or, you know, were you early to all of your kids' appointments or games or whatever? It's did you show up fully as a person? Were you fully available for people? Raw and authentic and willing to be vulnerable in your journey and allow people who are in the right to, to join in that journey, who have been found worthy, trustworthy um, of the honor of that. And that moment is when we can set with ourselves. And I'm not perfect in it, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I know one thing, when I know that I'm out of whack, I know I need to reconnect. And there's something missing. And usually I need to grab my Bible. <laughs> I need to grab my journal. 
and I need to start writing what's going on in my head. And it usually comes from the enemy and he wants to tear down that. And so our life is chaotic a lot. We own a farm and I have a private practice and my husband's a pharmacist and there, and we have kids in four different locations and three different states and grandchildren. And it's, it's a lot of life and a lot of fullness. And, um, but at the end of the day, I want to be okay setting with myself. If something doesn't go right, that is okay. It's okay. And I get another chance to live up to what I want to be um, tomorrow. And I don't have to get it all right. Very freeing. Oh, yeah. It's (laughs) it's very freeing. I uh, shared recently on uh, Facebook and Instagram, you know, when people will say to me, how do you do it all? They've asked that for years from when I was in grad school and I had three children, three and under. And, and now with my work and having five children with three teenagers and, and they say, how do you do it all? And I'm like, some days well, and some days not. And that's okay. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's It's a beautiful thing when we can be at that place. But then of course, the day I shared all that on social media, it wasn't a good day and it wasn't okay. Yeah. But then there's a new day and we start again. And we find that that all is well with our soul, despite things not going as well as we'd like. Or the picture that we think it should be. (laughs) Oh, well, that's a whole other episode about expectations. I know. Lots of laughter. (laughs) Yes. Crystal, it has been a delight to have you as a guest. Thank you for entrusting me and my listeners with this small glimpse into your life story. I uh, wish you the best with your ongoing medication over the next five years. And uh, thanks for reminding me and our listeners that to be able to sit with yourself is a good place to be. Yes, it is. And thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you, Crystal, for joining us on A Life Shared, Parent Helps and Renovations. Thanks for joining me, Ellen Martin, for this episode of A Life Shared, Parent Helps and Renovations. I hope in some way it helped you live with others in ways that give life. That's A Life Shared. It's what we were made for. Thank you.